there's so many people talking about work-life balance. I think that's BS. Work and life are the same thing. And combining your work passions and your life passions into one unit is way more effective than talking about a work-life balance. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting-edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Valley podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode where I have the one and only David Meerman Scott. And so, David, we've had a chance to share stages, 10 similar conferences, but you've always been this amazing person pushing the boundaries of what's coming when it comes to marketing, PR, and really getting your message out in front of the right people. And I'd love to know a bit of your journey as to how did you become this person who's always pushing these boundaries and really being at the cutting edge of these ideas? Hey, Jason, so good to be here. And thanks for noticing that. So I got fired in 2002. I was working for Thomson Reuters and they decided to usher me out the door. And it was a terrible job market because it was right after 9-11. I thought I wanted to get another vice president of marketing job, but I couldn't find one. So I went out on my own. And that's when I recognized that I have this weird ability to identify patterns in the universe before other people notice that patterns and then write about them and speak about them. So the first pattern that I noticed, which I thought was dramatic enough for me to write and speak about was about 2002, 2003, I recognized, oh my gosh, the world of marketing isn't about advertising online. The world of marketing is changing to creating content online like a publisher would. So I wrote a book called The New Rules of Marketing and PR that came out originally in 2007 and instantly hit the bestseller list. It's now out in the um, sixth edition. It sold 400,000 copies in English and is in 29 other languages. I had another one of these moments. Oh my gosh, I'm noticing patterns in the universe that other people aren't noticing. And that was happening about 10 years ago. So 2009, 2010-ish. I wrote a book called Real-Time Marketing and PR, as well as I wrote about the concept I call newsjacking. Newsjacking is when you inject your ideas into a breaking news story. And real-time marketing is about just the whole world is happening instantly right now. And nobody else was seeing that pattern. And that was because that was right around the time that Google began to index in real time. And that was right about the time that Twitter started to take off. So it was about real-time connection. And I wrote and spoke about that concept. In fact, newsjacking became so popular, it's now listed in the Oxford English Dictionary, and it's got my name against it, which is fabulously cool. And it happened to me again five years ago when I realized, oh my gosh, I'm seeing patterns in the universe no one else is seeing. And in this case, it was the ideas of online communications, people have been abusing this channel. They're doubling down. They're sending yet another email message so that when you get on email lists, you get more than one message a day from some companies. They're sending yet another social media post. At the same time, the social media companies 
are starting to insist that you pay to get your stuff noticed. It doesn't just get out there when you send good content. And the whole world is becoming more polarized, our political world and companies too, sometimes creating polarization. And the pattern I recognize from there is that we're really entering an era where people are hungry for a true human connection again. And that's where I think we're going. So I know you asked me a really simple question and I really riffed on it for a while, but I do think that I bring this ability to identify patterns before other people do and write and speak about them. Love it. And I've seen you speak about some of these concepts. I remember when you start talking about newsjacking, and now it's something that's commonly used. We've used it here at Mind Valley. And this latest book that is going to be coming out here or has been already coming out by the time we were listening to this podcast, Phenocracy or Fanocracy, is really going to be some bold game-changing ideas. And before we dive into the concepts of that, because there's some insights there that is going to be super valuable for people listening, I wanted to maybe just dig a bit more to the fact that you have that ability to see trends. And I'd love to know, like, what gets you to be so sharp in that industry? Is it by having your two feet in the ground, like in the activity? Like, tell us more about that and how somebody can nurture that kind of insight. For me, what's worked is that I'm very curious. I'm always looking around to see things that I notice that get me excited that maybe other people aren't talking about. I like to go to different interesting places, whether it's just an interesting corner of the Boston, the city I live in, or an interesting corner of the world as I'm about to leave and three or four days to go to the Seychelles, a group of islands off the eastern coast of Africa. I've never been there before. I don't know what the hell's going on there. So my wife and I are going to go and check it out. And I read a lot, but I read really diverse sorts of things. I watch zero television, none, absolutely none. And every time I get invited to speak at a conference, which is 30 or 40 times a year, I stay at the conference because I want to meet people and talk to them and understand a little bit about the business. Two days ago, I was at an event in Mexico for all of the dealers in Canada for Mazda, the car company. I don't know anything about the auto dealer business. So I stayed for two days to learn about it. And so doing that allows me to have these crazy inputs coming into my brain. I then sort them somehow. It seems to be different than other people. And eventually I come up with a way of looking at all the things I'm seeing in a unique way. And when I do that, I start to run those ideas by people. Hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? And then if people like what I'm talking about, I start to tweet about it. I start to blog about it. I start to talk about it in my public presentations. And if that resonates, then I think I've got a book. And that's when I begin really digging in doing the research. I love that. There's a lot of clues that you leave here. And I love the quote that says genius leaves clues. And so this whole sense of being very curious, really keeping yourself attentive and listening to what's happening. Ideas have this way of emerging through conversations you're having regularly. You're seeing people's patterns. How are they using? And I just want to dive in the fact that here at Mindvalley, if anybody's on Mindvalley's email list, you know that we do send a few emails once in a while. Matter of fact is we do send a lot and we're trying to put a lot of things in place so that we can segment better, communicate better. With a matter of 
fact is that this is a trend we're noticing. Less people are opening emails, less people are noticing stuff on social media, and this new wave of communication is dawning upon us. And I know that this whole idea of phenocracy is going to be super relevant, not just for the people listening to this being in sales and marketing roles, but there's a lot to be learned just from being an average consumer choosing what you're going to be purchasing from and seeing the companies you want to do business with. And within your own organization, you can start influencing changes that are going to be aligning with these trends that are coming up. So David, I would be loving to dive into these ideas of phenocracy. And so can you tell us a bit about how did this book become something concrete and what are the trends we're getting into here? Yeah, absolutely. So about five years ago was when I first started to see this pattern we just spoke about where it felt to me like companies were just doubling down too much in the online channel. And in some cases, organizations were really going too far into the AI world and robots so that you wouldn't even know if you were communicating with a robot until you tried to ask a more detailed question. And so I started to think about this. And then at the same time, I started to think about the fact that I am a huge fan of a few things. I'm a huge fan of live music. I've been to 790 live music shows. I actually keep a spreadsheet <laughs> starting when I was age 15. I've been to 75 Grateful Dead concerts. So I am dig into this idea of the things that I'm a fan of. And I was talking to my daughter. She was 21 years old at the time. She's 26 now. And I said to Reiko, what is it with my Grateful Dead fandom and my live music fandom? It's kind of crazy. And she said, I know I'm a massive Harry Potter fan. And of course I knew this, but she said, not only have I read every book multiple times, seen every movie multiple times, I've been to Wizarding World of Harry Potter in Orlando, Florida several times. I've even been to the studios where they film the movies in London, but I also just completed a 90,000 word alternative ending to the Harry Potter series where Draco Malfoy is a spy for the Order of the Phoenix. And I put that on a fan fiction site. It's been downloaded thousands of times and it has hundreds of comments. So we decided then and there that we were these massive fans of the things we love and that everybody has some kind of fandom like this. So we looked and we decided at that point to write the book together. So she's my co-author on Fanocracy. And we decided to write together because we recognize that we see the same patterns, that the digital channel in many ways is broken, number one. And number two, that we are passionate about the things we love. And how can we dig into this idea of fandom and then also maybe create ideas for people to be able to tap fandom for themselves? And she's a perfect co-author because obviously we're different genders. Obviously we're different generations and we have different fandoms. She's also mixed race. So she brings an interesting perspective there. And she also is a neuroscientist finishing up her medical school education. She's going to be a doctor next year. And so she comes from a very different perspective that way as well from me being a marketing guy. Yeah, and I'm a marketing guy too. And I know at Mind Valley, we've done some significant shifts into recognizing some of these ideas, but not necessarily following any kind of blueprint. So it's fascinating to know that your book is coming out because we've been doing a lot of tests and things that we're noticing is yes, this whole idea of tribe, this whole idea of community and connection, these are the things that we see are audience looking for. And so what are things that we can do as an organization who's recognizing this trend and a way to better grow the business, but at the same time, just serve better? 
So one of the things we recognized, if you really boil down fandom and what you're a fan of, and we spoke with thousands of people about what they're a fan of. In my case, live music, my daughter's case, Harry Potter. She's also really into Comic-Con. I'm also really into surfing. So we spoke with people who are really into things like watching sports or participating in sports. They're into triathlon. They're into gardening. They're into fly fishing, all kinds of different things. It turns out that the commonality is this. It's a true human connection because generally, we become fans of something where we can share that experience with other like-minded people. We love the sports team that we follow because we can go to the stadium or watch television or share texts with people who also are fans of the same team. We love to, in my case, go to live music shows with my best friends. They've become my best friends, the people I go to the live music shows. And you use the word tribe, which I love. It's a tribe of people who speak the same language. It's a tribe of people who have the same rituals. And in fact, we dug into the idea of tribes and rituals and recognized that in our culture today, we no longer have coming-of-age ceremonies. There were coming-of-age ceremonies all throughout human history, and there still is in indigenous people. We actually spoke with some indigenous people in Panama, the Kunayala people who live in grass huts, have no electricity, no running water. They have coming-of-age ceremonies when you reach puberty. We don't anymore. And many times, the thing that we're the most passionate about for me, live music, for my daughter, Harry Potter, are things that we did when we reached puberty and that our friends did, and we created a coming of age ceremony among ourselves that wasn't sanctioned by the adults around us. And therefore that forms who we are as people, even into, in my case, my fifties, and in my daughter's case, her twenties. And in the people we spoke with, this is true of so many of them, more than half of us are the biggest fans of the things we started to do at the time we reached puberty. You know what? I've never heard anybody mention that association around that puberty age activities. And now that you mentioned this, I actually have my own story that comes up, which is when I was overweight in high school, I had that moment where I first went to the gym, lost weight, felt good about myself. And today I've associated myself with a brand, which is Spartan Races, because they make me feel like a superhero, like they get me to feel good. And now I've really embraced that identity as a true fan to the point that I actually have to go to this seminar to write a book, but I'm having to really mess with my flight plan so that I can be back in Orlando to go do a race that I want to commit to, which makes no rational sense. But here I am acting, you would say crazy because I decided to become a fan of this. And so what can companies do to kind of make themselves as attractive as something like that or to nurture on this rite of passage? Is it okay that it's companies that are providing it now? Oh, absolutely. And I can't wait to read you a quote, which I'm going to do right now. I'm reading from the back cover of Fanocracy. 
Our customers are no ordinary customers. They are diehard fans who bleed for us the world over. They love calling themselves Spartans. They bear Spartan tattoos and share their experiences with family and friends, bringing hundreds of thousands of new Spartans into the brand each year. Fanocracy will teach you how to do the same for your business. Joe DeSena, founder and CEO of Spartan. He's talking about you, Jason. Well, I'll give you a thing back is the fact that I've met Joe Decina. I went to see him. I told him this story. And the fact is at Mind Valley, we have over 50 people who are now running Spartan races after I had a chance to go do it. And then I recruited everybody else. And it's now become a foundational part of Mind Valley's identity that people who join Mind Valley are more likely to lose weight, get in shape, do a Spartan to the point that we're doing deep collaborations with them now. It's amazing. Do you have Spartan tattoo? I don't have the tattoo, but I got at least five shirts and I got another finisher shirt waiting for me when I cross that finish line. But they're very intentional on how they design that, right? Yeah, no, it's really, really cool. So I love the fact that you're also a Spartan and Joe loves fanocracy. He was so thrilled to see the book and read it and give us that wonderful quote for the back of it. Here's something that became really interesting to us as we were doing our research that we never thought of that gets, I think, to the heart of this idea of how and why we become fans and how companies can tap that. And that is a genuine and true human connection. We interviewed several neuroscientists about the idea of how and why people become close to other human beings. And it turns out that there's actually something hardwired into our brains, into our DNA as human beings about how we relate to other people who are close to us. And it turns out that the closer we get to someone, the more powerful the human connection is, either negative or positive. So if we know someone and trust them, it's a powerful positive connection. If we're wary of someone, we sense danger, it's a powerful negative connection. That's why when you're at a party with your friends, it's a very positive connection when you're close to them. If you're in a crowded elevator, you don't trust people, it can be a very negative feeling. So there's actually four different levels of proximity to people that were identified by a neuroscientist called Edward T. Hall. Further than 12 feet is called public space. We humans don't really track people who are further than 12 feet away from us. Once they get within 12 feet, it's called social space. We track them. We can't help it. That's hardwired into our brains. And once they get within about four feet, that's personal space. That's where the really powerful connections happen. And so what this means is the more we can purposefully put people within close physical proximity to us, to our employees, to other customers, to our partners, the more powerful those human connections are and the more likely you are to grow fans. So the thing about Spartan is you don't do it by yourself. You do it with others. You do it with like-minded people who are part of the tribe, who are you are in close physical proximity with, struggling up the rope ladder or whatever it is with someone directly next to you in your personal space. That's powerful stuff. And every company has an opportunity to create ways to get closer to existing and potential customers, whether it's simply going to lunch with people or visiting them in their office, or one of the coolest and simplest ways is create a customer conference to bring people together. Or if you run a tiny business like I do, it's just me and my business, go to events. So I always, when I have a chance to go to events, 
I'll stay longer than I have to. My speech is over, but I'll stay for another full day because I want to connect with people on a true human level. At Mind Valley, we were a lot of digital online courses, and we understood some of these concepts around Try because the way we design our courses now is all people start together and finish together, and they go through daily exercises, daily content. That's a core part of the quest. But we still noticed that that idea of proximity, it was really hard to translate digitally. And, you know, we would add elements of like webinars and such, but it's only when we start doing live events at scale. And like you said, customer conferences, that was game changer. Yeah, that's really big. But we did find a particular way to build this proximity into virtual events and into things like courses. So there's a, another concept in neuroscience called mirror neurons. Mirror neurons are the part of your brain that fires when you see or hear somebody do something as if you are doing it yourself. And this actually explains lots of interesting things. For example, it explains why you think you know a movie star or a television star that you've never met before. Your brain tells you that you are personal friends with that movie star because you've been in close physical proximity to them in a virtual way. So you're going to see me do it. Others will hear it. I have a lemon and a slice of lemon in my hand right now. And I'm going to take a little bite out of this lemon. And as I do that, Instantly, my eyes close, my mouth puckers up, my saliva glands start to secrete saliva. I can feel that tartness on my tongue. It's like a powerful thing biting into this lemon. And I would suggest, Jason, just by seeing that on video and listening to it, that you are probably having a little bit of a reaction too. Your brain is likely firing in the same way mine is. And other people, even though they didn't see that on video, they just heard it might be having the same reaction. I was having my lips together. I'm doing that sound, that puckering. We get to see each other here, but people listening, I'm sure you're getting a similar reaction. So these mirror neurons are very powerful. Powerful. So here's where this comes into play for something like you described, creating online courses, or for anybody listening in for how you use social media, how you use video, how you use photographs on your website. So I mentioned the most powerful connections come when people are within four feet of us. That's called personal space. That's when the most powerful emotional connections have. That's hardwired into our brains as humans. That's non-negotiable. So if you're physically close to someone, that's very powerful. But if you can't get physically close, you can use photos and video to make virtual closeness. What that means, though, if you specifically have to crop those photos and videos such that it looks like somebody's within four feet of the camera. And you've got to look directly into the camera so that you're looking into the eyes of the people on the other side of the camera, on the screen looking in. And so what this means for creating the sorts of things you do at Mind Valley, the online courses, and I've got several online courses I've built myself, when I'm looking directly at the camera and it's cropped as if I'm around four feet away from somebody, that's incredibly powerful. You're creating through mirror neurons the kind of bond with people as if you were physically close to them, the kind of bond with people that makes them 
feel as though you are a friend and you are someone that can be trusted. And that turns into creating fans of that business. It also explains, interestingly, the selfie phenomenon. Many people dismiss selfies as frivolous. Well, it turns out that a selfie, because it's taken with your arm and away from your face about four feet again, there's that magic number, and you're looking directly at the camera, and many times there's other people in the photograph with you, so the group selfie shot, that's fabulously powerful as a way to align with the people who see that selfie as if they know you personally. And frequently, a selfie will get more reaction, more likes, more retweets, more shares on social media than any other images or just plain text because of this concept of mirror neurons. And if you can use that in your business it can be fabulously powerful. And if you use that in your personal life, even the ways that you interact with other people in your personal life and at work, you can develop a stronger connection to your coworkers, to your customers, to your potential customers, to your bosses. So I'd love to hear of an example of a company, once they start applying this, or even I love the fact that you're talking about the individual, because some people listening here are in the workplace. Are you saying that you should be building your own personal brand in order to build, what is it? Is it a fan base around you as an individual? So the way I look at it from the perspective of an individual is, and this is kind of one of my favorite quotes in the entire book, my daughter actually wrote the quote, so I'll give her the credit, Reiko, my co-author. Passion is infectious. So what that means is that I believe very strongly that we in business should share parts of our personal life. So I've already shared with you, I'm a huge fan of the Grateful Dead. I love live music. I'm into surfing. My daughter's into Harry Potter. Those are things about our personal life. I share photos on my social media of me at rock concerts, of me surfing, of me traveling the world, of me at events that I speak at. That serves as a way to show people what I'm passionate about. And that passion of what I love to do is infectious and people naturally gravitate to people who have passion. And I would contrast that with what so many people do and are told, which is keep your business life over here, keep your personal life over here. You know, business you do on LinkedIn, personal you do on Facebook. There's so many people talking about work-life balance. I think that's BS. Work and life are the same thing. And combining your work passions and your life passions into one unit is way more effective than talking about a work-life balance. And I believe very, very strongly that the more passion you show, people are eager to do business with you. And one of those manifestations specifically is the way you use those images that we just talked about. Sharing what you love to do in your personal life on your social sites is powerful. And you asked for an example. One of my favorites is Dr. John Marashi. And his Instagram is fabulous because he's a dentist in Southern California. And most dentists have pictures of teeth. Oh, look at the nice white teeth I made. Look at the nice straight teeth I made. He does those photos too. But he also shares 
photos of him skateboarding. He loves to skateboard. He also shows photographs of him with his family. Now, I'm not saying you have to do photos with your family. Some people are uncomfortable showing images of their children, but Dr. Marashi does so. He also shows images of him posed with some of his patients, and some of them are actually famous people in Southern California. And this shows his passion, his passion for skateboarding, his passion for his family, his passion for his customers. And this has grown his business by 30% since he started to do it because people want to do business with people who are passionate. Do you want to do business with the dentist who's all about teeth? Or do you want to do the dentist who loves his family and loves to skateboard? So again, you're bringing a lot of that human element within the business. And we kicked off with the fact that you saw this shift in the marketplace. And I wanted to give maybe directions for people who are more specifically in the role of marketing and getting that attention within a company. You know, we used to just send more emails, advertise more dollars. And now what we're seeing is that, no, if you actually start investing more into building and nurturing this fan base, becoming more human as a brand, it's what's going to generate a lot more results. Would you be able to give an idea of what a company should be looking to do? Like, where should they invest their funds to transition to this new wave? I think that it really comes down to what we've been talking about all along is a true human connection. And there's a couple of prescriptions specifically for marketers that I'd like to talk about. And each one of these is sort of a chapter in the book which people can dig in and learn more about. The first one is giving more than you have to. And by this, I mean the more you can give away for free without any expectation of anything in return, the more that's likely to come back to you. So I'm a strong believer that the more you give to the universe, the more the universe gives back to you. That's kind of a airy-fairy kind of feeling. But I truly believe that to be true. And one of the outward manifestations for marketers of that is so many marketers push out content but demand that people have to give up an email address and other contact information before they give away something for free. For example, the typical thing is, here's my white paper, give me an email address and I'll give it to you. But that sets up an adversarial relationship and is unlikely to build fans because you're saying to somebody, I don't trust you. I'm not going to give you something until you give me something first. And so I believe very strongly you should give that white paper away with no expectation of getting anything in return for it. And then if people like it, they will want to do business with you. Another form of how you can use this as a marketer, a different concept, is to really and truly treat your customers as fans, as humans, as people, and use real language. So many technology companies use language like this, you know, the flexible, scalable solution for improving business process using critical technology. And every business has their lingo. But when you communicate using lingo like that, and when you use inane stock photographs of people to represent your customers or to represent your partners, that is not being human and that is not going to get you very far. So real simple stuff here, but use real human language when you write and use real human images when you use photographs for your marketing and your website. It really seems like you said, it's not rocket science, but you need to actually have more trust in the human that you're doing business with, right? You're telling a marketer, don't capture the email. You need to have a trust that your white paper is so good that you just want to get it in the hands of more and more people that it will naturally make them want to do business with you. 
Exactly right. We've illustrated this in the book Fanocracy, but there are ways that you can have an offer inside of original free content. So there's ways you can get that email address. For example, the white paper is free, but then, hey, sign up for our email newsletter. I'd rather have someone sign up for my email newsletter because they already read my white paper and love it than somebody who just gives me an email address because they want to get a white paper. You know, there's two very different things. It's very much like, one is very transactional. They get what they wanted, then they're out. The other one is like, hey, come into my home, which seems a lot more human in the process. That's exactly right. Neuroscience suggests that we humans are hardwired to be excited about receiving a gift. We feel compelled to return that gift somehow, if it's a gift that we appreciate. So giving something away with no expectation of anything in return, if someone likes it, they will want to help you out. As opposed to if you say, give me your email address before I give you the white paper, they won't feel that social compelling idea of wanting to return something because they've already done that by giving you their email address. So as we're coming towards the end of this, David, I was going to ask you, are there certain companies that cannot apply this new wave of fanocracy? We have not come across anybody. We've found organizations that have created fans in typically boring businesses like B2B technology or enterprise software. We found people who have created a massive fanocracy in a business everybody hates, auto insurance. I've asked thousands and thousands of people who loves auto insurance. Zero people have told me yes, including the CEO of Haggerty Insurance, which is a company that's built a massive, massive fanocracy around auto insurance. We've found commodity businesses. Duracell Batteries has built a fanocracy. We've found businesses in all kinds of different industries who've created this kind of fandom. So we believe very strongly that any industry can do so. And so the last question, I'd want to close this off because we've obviously covered a lot of aspects, which is, listen, we're seeing these people gravitate towards the things that they want to become raving fans of. Companies can nurture this by treating people just being a lot more human. And if you're within an organization, if you start seeing that your personal life, which you're passionate about, allows you to radiate more within your workplace, and you should be open and happy to be able to share that because you will have that passion rise within you with a scene among your colleagues, which actually gives you a lot more advantage within the workplace. And so if I'm listening to this, right, I get the message. I want to move more towards this. I may be dealing with upper management person who's just not seeing this trend as much. What would be something you could give for people to chew on that they would talk to somebody within their organization to get them to embrace this new direction, who would be able to remove barriers and move in the correct direction? The way I look at it is that this idea of fandom, this idea of passion is for any organization. Fandom used to be thought of as only around entertainment and sports. But we believe absolutely 100% that fandom can be applied to any business, even outside of entertainment and sports. And one of the outward manifestations of this to prove that point is that People, when they become fans of something, are eager to wear the logo of the thing they're a fan of. They're eager to wear the hat on their head. They're eager to wear the logo on their T-shirt. We talked about Spartan. They're even eager sometimes to put a tattoo on their body, or they're eager to put a sticker on their computer, or they put a sticker onto their car. And so that proves to me that any organization can build fans. 
And I would say if somebody wants to try to convince the bosses of this idea that they should be thinking about showing those bosses, hey, you're a fan. I see you've got a bumper sticker for a ski resort on your car. I see you've got a sticker on your computer for something or other. We can grow fans here in our business too. Let me share with you some of the ways we can do it. And a couple of things will happen when you do this. Number one, you might be an agent of change and have an absolutely remarkable experience as a result. You will become a very, very important part of the organization, probably get a promotion. You know, maybe they'll have you run marketing. That could happen. The second thing that could happen is you could be seen as a pain in the ass. And if that happens, that's a good thing because like me, you may get fired. And that may end up getting you into a spot after that that's way better for you than the spot you're in now. Or the third alternative is only three. The third alternative is you say and do nothing and you just collect your paycheck. I suppose there's nothing wrong with that, but you're not living a life of passion. David, thank you so much for being on this podcast. You shared some amazing insights. And for everybody listening, I hope you're noticing that you're speaking with a man who's called the trends happening within this space many times since the years 2000 here. And now we have an opportunity of picking up on a new trend that fact is we've noticed at Valley. We can't wait to get a copy of this book to start implementing even more ideas. Matter of fact, we have a KPI at Valley, which is how many people have Valley tattoos. And we're at three. Nice. Awesome. And so we recognize this to be so powerful. We know that our raving fans are pushing the message of what Mind Valley stands for. And by the time you pick up this book, if you don't have it already, go and pick it out. It's Fanocracy. We're going to make sure that there's a link within the podcast notes. And by the time you're done with this book, if you've went ahead, talked to your boss, maybe got that promotion, became the CMO, you might even look at putting a tattoo of the cover of Fanocracy on yourself as well as you become a fan of David Meerman Scott. David, Thank you so much for your time. This was a ton of fun. And everybody, thank you for listening. Thanks, Jason. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. 